Okay, right. welcome to Environmental Social Justice. We're gonna try our logo one more time. StreamYard is not playing nice. Let's try this again. Okay, now it works. I saw it. So welcome to Environmental Social Justice. Today we have Ms. Deborah Halberstadt of the Department of Insurance for the state of California. Welcome, Deborah, to the show. Thank you, Wendy. And um, one of the things that's been a hot topic, no pun intended, is um, insurance, climate change, heat, wildfire, everything. So could you go into a bit of detail why heat is so important with respect to climate change and insurance? Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. First of all, I just want to thank you for having me on the show. I'm really excited to be here and it's a pleasure to meet Joel and Joy. Um, and, you know, so so to start out with, I wanted to let you know that the Commissioner Lara, the insurance commissioner of the state of California, um, takes climate change incredibly seriously. And he was the first commissioner in the country to create a climate and sustainability branch. Um, and that's where I work now. Um, and, and we've been looking at different climate threats, wildfire, flood, and heat. And heat has been kind of an under-recognized climate threat for a while up until, I would say, this past year when we saw the heat dome in British Columbia and the Pacific Northwest just completely devastate um, that area. And then we experienced heat here in California as well, significant extreme heat. And, and our primary concern is the impact this has, especially on vulnerable communities. Um, so you've got elderly, you've got disabled individuals, you've got pregnant women and children, you've got agricultural workers and warehouse workers, um, and heat has disproportionately affected um, low-income, vulnerable communities, communities of color. And, and so we see this protection gap that needs to be filled, and we're trying to think through where can insurance play a role? Because right now there is no insurance for heat. Um, yeah. where you can get flood insurance, you can get fire insurance, but you can't get heat insurance. It doesn't, it doesn't exist. So how can we use existing uh, insurance structures and products to address that threat in kind of new and innovative ways? So that's where we're spending a lot of our focus. And we had a, um, a climate insurance working group that was created as a part of um, legislation that now Commissioner Lara um, sponsored when he was a senator. And that, so that working group has been working for a couple of years and it came out with a set of recommendations in the summer and, and its recommendations focus specifically on wildfire, flood and heat. And so in the heat context, we're really digging into what they suggested and how we can implement some of those ideas, whether it's looking at things like parametric insurance, which is where you have a, um, a trigger mm -hmm. that tells you, okay, now you, you meet this trigger and insurance can kick in. Well, how could that apply in the context of heat? Well, um, so the commissioner is sponsoring legislation this year to rank heat waves. It would be the first heat ranking um, legislation in the country. And, and can we use those rankings to act as some kind of trigger that would then um, kick insurance into play and get um, you know, funds deployed where they need to be um, to help those, particularly those communities I mentioned, this disadvantaged and vulnerable community. So we're, we're really kind of playing with a lot of ideas and trying to be innovative, thinking about the different types of insurance that exist and how we can plug those into a new and increasing disaster. 
which is not an easy task. And I know that you guys have released some papers on um, heat and risk. One of the things just to clarify to people who may not understand what parametric coverage is. Sure. So think about with a hurricane, if you have a, a parametric coverage, it's a different type of insurance. And if there's a hurricane, so if you have a category one hurricane, you would get X amount of dollars. It's just a set in stone. You have a category two hurricane, you get Y amount of dollars and so on. Regular insurances, you have to file a claim, state your losses, itemize them. This is just, you have this event, you get X amount. There's no discussion, there's no fighting, there's no lawyers, there's no analysis. So it's <laughs> the process. Um, but that being said, he, with, you know, 20 years of insurance here, guys. So <laughs> I know I, I'm kind of trying to, my brain's in overload. The hardest part with respect to covering heat or figuring out how to cover heat is how to manage it. So insurance carriers, the people who write the policies are going to say, well, how can we manage this risk? How can we control this risk? And I think that's going to be the largest hurdle. Yeah, absolutely. And we've been meeting with a bunch of different insurers and reinsurers and local community groups and really trying to wrestle with what are what are um, the immediate needs and then kind of what are longer term approaches that we could take. So so for an immediate need, is there a way that we could use, you know, anticipatory finance and really think through, can we get funds out ahead of time to you know, yeah. local community organizations that can then distribute them in a way that's helpful to the community? Or can are there other other approaches that we could use that are like immediate and direct? And then we're also thinking about, well, the urban canopy, the tree canopy is an incredibly valuable asset. And, um, you know, there's a lot of money from the state going into planting these urban forests, particularly in neighborhoods that do not have sufficient coverage. Um, can we insure the urban canopy? What would that look like? Um, you know, it's vulnerable to pests, it's vulnerable to drought. So there, there are threats and you could have, you know, geographic distribution. Right now, it's it's very much in the exploratory sort of um, let's think about this idea. It's the, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. Or there are also all these cool roof and cool wall and cool pavement technologies. Are is can insurance play a role in incentivizing deployment of those technologies so that we have, um, you know, homes that would be hardened against uh, heat the same way that we're looking at homes hardened against fire? Like, are there ways that we can use insurance as, as a lever to incentivize different behaviors? Oh, yes. So I mean, you have to worry about other issues too. Like, like you said, the drought, um, it, it, it all comes back to one central question. Where is the money going to come from? How can you incentivize each area of it, whether it's the water, uh, the canopy or planting the plants? Uh, energy usage, how can you incentivize all of them together in some sort of delicate balance where we make these things work without one uh, portion suffering at the expense of the others? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I, we see this as a potential for a public-private partnership. We see this as, um, you know, the state playing a role, local governments playing a role, private industry playing a role. So, but but you're asking the, the key question, like who pays for it? How much does it cost? What's the, what does the coverage look like? All of those are, you know, not, we, we don't even have an, the, the solid idea yet, let alone those kinds of details, but those are exactly what we need it to be. Um, kind of well, I guess my, my initial thought when I'm hearing this is that it sounds almost kind of like you're setting up 
what we have for earthquake insurance, which is you don't go to the private companies because they don't do it because too many companies lost their shirt, shall we say, during like the major earthquake. So you now go to the California earthquake um, insurance, which is like the state of thing, if I do believe. And so that's kind of like what it would be set up here because it seems, I mean, just from the outsider looking in, to try to go to the private insurers means that now those expenses will automatically be passed down to the consumer, which most people, based on the heat and the wildfires that have happened, we have, I've had clients before not even trying to get homeowners insurance next to impossible. And they're in major residential areas, they just happen to be up on a hill. And so the cost of that insurance, but now when you're talking about all these other things and then private insurance, it always trickles down. There's just no way around it. So I guess that's gonna be the big challenge is how does this not, and how do people, how do we pay for it? That's always right. No, I mean, I think that's, that's a really good point. And um, like I said, I don't have any answers at the moment. Um, I think, I, but I do think, you know, the, the, like I said, I think the state has a role um, I think that local governments have a role. And so if you if you look at things like meso insurance, so the idea of meso insurance is you have um, a risk aggregator that then kind of redistributes those funds. So, so the, the risk aggregator, the, me, the meso insurance participant purchases the insurance. And then when the, when you have the event that happens, they get the money and then they can redeploy it. So that's a really interesting model um, because then you could have, um, you know, local governments that are participating or community-based organizations that are participating um, and the state playing some kind of role in helping to aggregate that risk and then be the ones filing, you know, doing the working with the insurers um, to then get funds that then would be redistributed. So it wouldn't be on the went beyond the backs of the homeowners and the individuals to like have to request the insurance and get the insurance and file a claim. I mean, I think that that's when we're thinking about something like heat um, and the particularly the, the low income vulnerable communities, I think asking them to add on an additional burden um, yeah. is, is not realistic, right? And, okay. and it's not really our goal. Yeah, One of the I was just going to say um, the underlying message that I'm hearing is prevention is key. Yeah. You know, um, mitigation, it's also called mitigation factors, but try to stop it before it starts, make the risk better for insurance carriers, and then they will come back to the table. So we have to do a little work ourselves, and that not only the state and the local governments, but the individual. Mm -hmm. Do what you can to, you know, reduce what you are contributing to the heat, to the wildfires, to the droughts, um, and just be more proactive. Yeah, and absolutely. I mean, I think that, that you know, I ju always jump right into climate adaptation because that's kind of where my, my brain is. But yeah. without a doubt, the only way that we're actually going to be able to deal with these climate challenges going forward is to reduce our emissions and to address greenhouse gases and, and kind of reduce those climate impacts. But that said, I mean, my background is actually in um, in climate policy and law, and I spent several years as the executive director of the Ocean Protection Council. Um, and so I really have thought a lot about sea level rise and um, coastal flooding. And, you know, it's just clear that, that the effects that we're seeing today were caused 20 years ago. I mean, it's already baked oh, in. Yeah. So, so we can change the trajectory like post 2050, but up until then, 
we've already created this mess. And so we do have to figure out ways to, um, to adapt now um, and looking forward for that 30 year horizon then plus whatever we can do to, to ameliorate the situation after that. Oh, exactly. But brilliantly said, because yeah, we, we knew about this for a long time. We just chose to ignore it. I mean, I, I don't mean to sound doomsday-ish, but are there really any things that individuals uh, can do themselves in light of COVID and in light of the economy um, to try to not just reverse what we've done over the last 20 years, but to make just one tiny thing a little bit brighter um, over the next few years so that the next 20 years are. Every little bit helps. <laughs> Every, little <laughs> Every little bit helps, yeah. I agree with that. I mean, I think that there's always things that individuals can do, but I do think that that at this point, it's more of a systemic issue and we really need to be challenging um, those systems that exist. Oh, yeah. Um, so. But yes, I mean, I, I wholeheartedly like, you know, change your light bulbs, run your dryer during the day when you can take advantage of solar, like all of those things, drive less, ride your bike 100%. But um, I also think that that it's a bigger question than we can deal with on an, on an individual level. Yeah, I mean, we, last summer, we painted our roof white, um, partially for a silicone type coating to keep the water out because our roof was leaking but reflection. And yes, we got messy. It was not a clean job. It, we got, <laughs> I got covered it, clothes got destroyed, but it was worth it because when the summer came around, we noticed we're like, our bedroom's not as scorching hot as it used to be. Great. I mean, it had a little bit of an effect so we didn't have to use the air conditioner as much. Exactly. And I think that, that those kinds of, that's exactly what I was talking about, like those new technologies, the cool roofs and cool walls and such, if we can get those out, you know, more, more, kind of accepted as, as um, potential options for people, I think you are, you are going to see an impact. And that will, like if everyone in the community had these reflective roofs, you would decrease the urban heat island effect. And Absolutely. so, I mean, it's, it's a community thing. We have to be thinking on an individual scale, what can I do for my home, for myself? And then what can I do as part of a community? And then what can that community do as part of a greater, um, you know, global community? So I think that there's like these concentric circles that we work within. But I think you brought up an interesting fact because we live we live in California. Mean, we're in California, so it's a very different part of the world. I mean, the fires that we just had last year, kind of or over the past few years rather, have just kind of shown we're not normal at all. What's going on in this world is not normal. But so then we start dealing with so the homes get burned down. It's a lot easier and faster to just build a brand new subdivision and to go back in clean up the debris. So we kind of are exasperating this problem by we're removing the forest and then we put people further out where we're not going to have the same infrastructure in place to combat the next round of fires. We're removing those trees, so it's like it's this never-ending cycle. And are you talking about the wooey? The what? The wooey. <laughs> Yeah, when I first heard that term, I'm like, what the hell's a WUI? It's the Wildlife Wildland Urban Interface, W-U-I. And that's why I don't use acronyms, folks. <laughs> but yeah, that's what's happening. People, urban sprawl, people are going yeah. over the areas. So it's like well, so you would have that it would happen in Colorado like it did. You know, just a sprawling yeah. fire and then add insult to injury, uh, snow two days after the event. You know, yeah, but I mean, you know, but then we start talking about the heat and what's going on. So as we're starting to, you know, the fires come in, they destroy the community. So that's rubble. We have no foliage. We have no ground coverage there. We just have rubble and concrete, which is going to basically attract more heat. 
Then we go into the next area because we can't, to try to get people housed, we start tearing down the trees and we start adding more concrete. So it's like, how do you, com how do you cycle. provide this cycle? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's an excellent question. And, um, you know, Commissioner Lara has been very clear that building homes in dangerous places is not cheaper. I mean, a lot of times there's this sense of, um, you know, you have, you can build, you can get a house that's less, that's more affordable um, out in the Wui or out in, you know, someplace that that is going to flood or, or be struck by fire. And, you know, it's not. And the, it, when your house burns down, that's not affordable. Um, and so we need to be thinking differently about land use and how we, um, how we build and where we build and um, what kind of insurance is available. Um, it's, it's interesting because what you're, what you're basically bringing up is the same thing that we talked that you mentioned before is that we're looking at the short term impact, which is yeah. people need a place to live and we have to make it affordable because as we all know, just the cost of living is astronomical. I mean, yes, people are making, making money right now, but they're also spending a ton of money right now just trying to put food on their table roof over the head and honestly insure it all so it's like you know so you try to look for those short-term those fixes for people to say okay we're going to rebuild in these areas it's going to be cheaper for you you can buy here we won't worry about the long-term causes and so it's like it's trying to find that balance of how do you not do that to get people to live but that keeps their costs down so they can live i mean it's it is it is incredibly difficult i mean and when you have the housing shortage that we have in the state um, I mean, you just like you have these forces that are butting up against one another, and it's it's not easy. No, we've become we we really are. It's it's literally the have versus have not. Like the middle area kind of is going. It's if not obliterated on its way out. I hate saying it, but it just kind of is what we're seeing happen right now. Well, that was depressing. Sorry. <laughs> well, I mean, the thing about the positive though is there. I mean, people always ask me because you know background in insurance. And I do work in the climate change sustainability world now. Is there relief on the horizon? Everyone's saying, well, when will property prices, when will property insurance go down? Unfortunately, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Yeah. Um, I am personally not seeing it. I think that if we start working on these mitigation measures and start doing the preventive measures, you'll see maybe less of an increase. Instead of 15% increase next year, you may see 10%. Um, I don't know if that's a valid statement, Deborah. I'm just kind of guessing from what I'm hearing on the street, but it seems to be the direction we're going. Yeah, I mean, I think that I can't speak to the to the rate increases and like what percent, but you know, I would say that that we at the department and, and Commissioner Lara in particular, we're really focused on um, community and and home wildfire risk reduction. And so we're looking yeah. at all different ways that we can accomplish that. You know, how can we harden homes? How can we harden communities? Because, you know, if you can do everything you want to a home for a fire, but if your neighbor or your neighbor's neighbor isn't exactly. also participating, you have this risk that your home is still going to get burned down. It's different from heat, right? Yeah. Like you can put a cool roof on your own home and that can benefit your neighbors, but it's not going to harm your neighbors if they don't also participate. Um, so, you know, we, we've convened a, um, a wildfire partnership with other state agencies. So we were working with the governor's office of planning and research and the California Public Utilities Commission and CAL FIRE and the California Office of Emergency Services um, to, to think about um, how do we establish 
these home and community hardening actions in, in a way that everyone recognizes and, and approves? And how can we kind of yeah. solidify that in such a way that it could be taken up by insurance companies and they could recognize those mitigation efforts and you could see a decrease in your premium you know, if you take those actions. So I think we're really looking at how do we reduce the risk and by reducing the risk, we should be able to reduce the cost of the premium. Well, one thing yeah. that is good is I know we now have, when you're selling a home, you now have the home hardening disclosure, which needs to be right. done. And right. you know, if you're in a high fire area, you've got to get the inspectors out there, the fire department to say what needs to be done to make your home more secure. We have the wildfire advisory disclosures. We have all sorts of disclosures right. and expenses. Oh, you know, know. Yeah, those are, they just came out this in the past. The home hardening one is now a disclosure. It comes with your NHD, natural hazard disclosure report. So that's now part of a disclosure. So it's a negotiation item to make sure that everything is done proper. Um, it's a whole thing. We can get into that later. Um, but I mean, those items are coming in. But again, that's when the home is sold. So, but like you said, what do you do with the neighbor who still has the tree right next door to the house? Right. You know, so it's like, it's, yeah, y'all are, y'all going to have some fun. <laughs> well, I mean, so we're looking at things like community insurance. Could we, could we get a community to work together and, you know, well, I've talked to you about captive policies that yeah, are kind of, you know, I've sent you a bunch of information on that, just my little harebrained ideas. But one of them was a captive run by the county where everybody is, as a community is kind of insured by this captive policy. Everyone pays into it. Everyone benefits from it. Joel is shaking his head. What? Good luck. <laughs> yeah. Good luck. Oh, I'm to pay for. Exactly. Well, that, yeah. And that's the thing is like, there's plenty of wildfire fund money out there, but it also, there has to be. We got to figure it out again, Deborah. You have a lot of work ahead of you. Yeah. <laughs> it's a normal Wednesday morning for you. you know? Normal Wednesday talking, you know, it's like, and again, this takes collaboration, outreach, communication, positive influence. I mean, and I love what Commissioner Laura is doing. I, I had the pleasure of meeting him a few years ago before COVID. And, um, funny story, I went to go shake his hand and I spilled my coffee all over the floor in front of him. I just tipped it over and he was like, Whoa, and I'm like. <laughs> But now he remembers me. Right. <laughs> so, Jill, I'm curious to know what what your thoughts are on those new disclosures. Like, how do you see them working oh. out? I think they're going to be good. I think it's going to be a matter of getting used to things. Um, the biggest issues that we're going to see is scheduling it and timing to get them done. Because when you start dealing with the home hardening, you've got to get your local fire department out there because it's not something that a normal inspector can do. You now have to go through the government agency. So now we've got this extra scheduling layer on top of it, which is fun. And then you've got it. And then it's about, okay, who's going to pay for these repairs, you know, so it's going to create these extra layers on people. So um, it'll be interesting to see how this is going to play out. Um, we have so many disclosures that adding another one to it. I'm like, Oh dear God. But <laughs> you know, I think this is actually a very good one. It's just when you're going to be looking at, one home surrounded by all these other homes and nobody's following and this yeah. one is going to be following these plans or the regulations that are set forth and the neighbors may not be that's where i'm like going okay how do you figure this out mm -hmm. you know but i think the disclosures are actually very important because i don't think people realize what needs to be done yeah and do you think that they would affect behavior in what regard like would someone's you know if it, if they the disclosure is okay you're in a very high fire severity zone um would that affect someone's choice to buy a house 
Potentially, yeah. because I think it could impact your homeowner's insurance. It, there's, it's going to impact so many things down the road. Um, I think because it's, it's going to impact the affordability of the home. So it mm -hmm. could very easily impact that. I do uh, know some people that were unable to purchase a home because they could not get homeowner's insurance. I've had so people walk away. Try, yeah, try to get homeowner's insurance and they had to jump through so many hoops and go through so many different agents. And they're in a, they're in Los Angeles. They just have to be hillside. But because mm -hmm. of the fires, the hillside, they kind of shut the curtain on it to just say yeah. nobody gets it. But I'm like, but there's a fire. There's, there's, you know, the fire hydrant is down the street. Like, I mean, everything is set up for it. There's never been a problem. And I understand the preventative aspect of it, but it's like, there has to be some sort of a balance between the established neighborhoods that have been there and not ruining people for lack of a better word um, because of that. So it's kind of like this weird situation. We're in a really weird time, especially yeah. when it's trying to insure your property. Yeah. Because yeah. private insurance, I mean, let's be honest, private insurance is a business. It's about the profits, every, yeah. every business, you know, so at what point in time does the consumer actually get the insurance coverage that they're paying for or able to get it? Right. Yep. So that's yeah. where Deborah and the commissioner come in and they're just going to make it all better for us. <laughs> what I think is actually really encouraging is to hear that you guys are actually looking at our past mistakes and being like, okay, this is where we screwed up. How can we, we need to redo this in a way that makes sense. Not yeah. just saying, oh, you just pay for insurance and then you make the claim and you'll get it. But like looking at forward and saying like, this is the world we've created. How do we insure and protect the people going forward? So it's, it really is about, I think a lot of people doing now is we're looking at our past mistakes. And I shouldn't say mistakes, but our past way of living and saying like, okay, that created this. We have to correct this now. And yep. insurance does play a role in that. And it plays a big role in that. Um, so I think that's actually really good to see people looking at the historical aspect of this and yeah. how we, how that impacts our present and future. But equally important, I love the fact that Deborah and her group created the wildfire research. So yeah. I forget the, per, the name. The wildfire name. partnership, yeah. Thank you. Um, you guys are looking at current data. You're looking at forecasts. So it's not just looking at the past, it's looking at the future so you can plan. And you guys have some really good climate scientists involved that have that knowledge and can actually kind of work through these problems. So that's also, you know, very forward thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just popped in my head really quick. So we had a, a, a conversation one time we were actually, I think it was, I don't remember when it was, but the thought was naming the heat events. It's kind of like you name a hurricane, you name yeah. a tornado. Yeah, you know, Kathy McLeod, uh, Boffman McLeod. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that would help people understand exactly what's going on? So yeah, so that's what we're what we're we're the legislation that we're looking at this year is focused on the ranking, less so on naming it. But at a minimum, if you could have a heat wave that is ranked say one through four, and then you'd know that you know you've got a category four heat wave um, that's predicted that's going to happen in three days. Um, and so that's where this idea of okay, could we then deploy resources through insurance? And because we know we have this warning that you've got you've got this early warning, you have three days to get money out to people so that they can take steps that will protect them so that we don't have the losses in the future, right? Like if, if you can look at it as avoiding loss after an event, we'd rather spend money protecting people before and not having them get sick and, and have to go to the hospital and have these heat-induced um, health issues. 
So you're saying preventative insurance. Well, that's just a wacky concept. Totally wacky. I I know. I and here I am talking about like ideas that we're we're spinning, right? We're just like with But they're great ideas. But that's the way prevention is cheaper. You prevent the incident from happening. That's what insurance is supposed to be about is making you whole and actually insurance is risk transfer, but that's what's that? Insurance is actually just risk transfer. So you sell a, a little bit of your risk to somebody else who takes on that risk for exchange of funds. Okay, but if you increase the risk, yeah, then you can have, you sell it for less, right? So we can, yeah. and it seems like health insurers might be interested in something like this because. <laughs> well, no, there was, there was a case I read up, uh, I think it was the state of New York. And there was a petition that if you bought elderly air conditioners, you would save a lot of money in hospital bills for heat exhaustion. Right. And it took some time. And of course, the healthcare was like, no, 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 we're not buying people air conditioners. And then they finally did. And all of a sudden, hospital stays went down. So thousands upon thousands of dollars for hospital stays versus a couple hundred bucks for an AC. Exactly. And if you could do things like misters and bottled water. I mean, there, there, was, a, there was a group in Sacramento, and this is not insurance based, but there was a group in Sacramento that decided to set up these little pop-up tents and have um, bottled water in ice chests. And they've made a map so that if you were unhoused or if you were riding your bike and it was really hot, or if you were walking from place to place and it was just, you needed a, a respite, you could go, to, people had set these up in their driveways and you could go and just get like a little bit of shade and some water. And that actually probably saves lives, you know? And so is there a way that we can integrate these kinds of creative ideas? Um, you know. No, you're right. I mean, it's those, it's a little bit of prevention is such a money saver that it should be second nature. Now I have to just bring this up because then you bring up the misters and the water bottle and my mind immediately goes to, okay, now we're in a drought. So, you know, so it's like, it's terrible to say, but like you start, you you spiral. Everything's connected. Yeah. 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 It's crazy. It's true. I mean, yeah. We are absolutely in a drought, and although hopefully, if we get some more rain, we'll we'll be out of the drought this year. I don't know. Snowfall alone will be helping a lot. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, planning ahead, absolutely. Um, that said, I think there's probably ways to um, enable people to have like a little bit of shade and a, and a little bit of water um, while they are suffering in these in a heat dome. So I don't know, there you're, it's going to be a balance of what do you what do you prioritize at that moment? <laughs> no, pressure. no, no, no. I mean, this has been a fantastic conversation. I know we went a little bit over and Deborah, I know you're super busy. So I honestly appreciate your time and taking the time out of your day to, to speak with us. But you gave us a lot to think about. Um, there is a lot of work that needs to be done. People need to do what they can. Individual efforts will add up enormously. Every little bit helps. And um, we'll just have to see what happens. Um, you guys are doing great work. Your, your ideas are brilliant. Um, just keep keep doing what you're doing. It's amazing. I thank you for that. <laughs> well, thank you. What would you say is like a good, everybody's online, obviously, if they're watching the show, they're online. But what's a good way for, where, where's some place online where people get tips on what they can do, just small things right now? Um. So I have read a couple of really amazing books that I think talk about these issues. Um, and I don't know these people at all, but I, I mean, there's All We Can Save um, is, is a fantastic book. Um, I think there's another one, if you're interested in things like recycling, there's, I think it's called, Can I Recycle This? 
Um, and then if you're interested in insurance and climate, which is like less, it's more on the aggregate level, um, certainly you can check out our, our climate insurance working group report, which is on our website. And it's a good group, smart people. I've read it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> thank you guys so much. Um, we'll see you next thank week. You. And Deborah, thank you again for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. You guys take care. Bye-bye.